My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight in the studio, Craig Saulman Sawyer. He grew up near Houston, Texas and got a tactical start in the U.S. Marine Corps. He quickly transitioned to the U.S. Navy to pursue the high-level special operations as a U.S. Navy SEAL. As an operator at SEAL Team 1, he gained critical combat experience in Desert Shield and Desert Storm, resulting in decorations for heroic service. After returning from Desert Storm, Craig served as a SEAL sniper instructor until being promoted to DevGrew. While serving at SEAL Team 1, Craig fought in various martial arts tournaments in Southeast Asia, as well as SCARS, that special combat aggressive reaction system hand-to-hand training under Jerry Peterson and Lou Hicks. These experiences built upon his martial arts history of fighting various tournaments, such as the Karate Olympics tournaments in Houston, Texas, and one year of formal boxing under Henry and Jim Harris. Now that he's retired, he's made a movie, and he runs VetsForChildrenRescue.org. In the studio tonight, Craig Sawyer. What's going on, man? Hey, thanks for having me on. I look forward to this chat. It should be it should be good. I, I think so. We have so much to talk about. Now, I, I want to talk about military service, and I want to talk about what you're doing now. I want to talk about some stuff that's happened with your family. But let's start out right away. What I've noticed about you in everything that I've read, every video I've watched, every interview it seems like you've always wanted to be at the front lines of helping people, no matter what that is. And and there's a lot of different things that you've done throughout your career. What gave you that drive from the very beginning? I know that's a really basic question, but I think it's one of your main drivers in everything that I've seen. And I think my buddies and I played a lot of army growing up. We, we had our little plastic toys and we were always imagining the bad guys coming to get us. And so we wanted to fight for our homeland. And, uh, you know, there was a, Sunday school teacher about junior high age, and this was in Southern Texas. So it was very, very outdoorsy, rough and tumble kind of a boyhood. And he was searching through the Bible to see what, what he could utilize to get our attention. And uh, we were boxing, we were fighting, we were riding dirt bikes and horses and playing football and wrestling. And we were just rough, man. He's like, how am I going to get these guys attention? And he realized, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to show them the entire life of King David. And that'll get their attention. And, and it did. And he went through in slow motion and showed us, you know, right through the whole thing. And it took a few weeks to get through and really captivated us. And I think that larger than life, legendary warrior that really changed things uh, kind of imprinted upon me what it means to really be a warrior and go big and make a difference and not just dabble at it. So that was kind of my psyche. That's, that's, that's the mindset with which I approached it. I think it took good care of me other than, you know, my chiropractor and my, my wife, I've got this drill gun that knocks the knots out of your, your, your muscles and your joints. And that, right. that about saves my life right now, man. I, nothing works right. Uh, my body's busted up, but my soul is happy, man. I, you know, I, I feel like I did what I, I needed to do and, and I continue to, I, I just, don't think there's any other way that I would recommend living life, man. I really believe that. It's just, 
you know, we got one shot at living here and, and, um, and looking back on our life, you know, when our eyes close for the last time, uh, are we going to be ashamed or are we going to be proud? And what? some things you can't buy, you know, and uh, I think that taking action and living a life that you believe in is, is something that can't be bought, man. I think it's interesting how you say that, too, because if you look at what you've done, even after you stepped away from the military and went into contracting and did some other stuff that you did, you say to live that one life, but you were always right there on the porch knocking on death's door. Is that something you, you, you know what I mean? Like you're living your life, but you're right there on the edge. Is there ever a time that you think that will stop for you? Because even what you're doing now, you're right there playing with fire. Um, well, do you think that will ever go away from you? There was a time when I was wearing Armani suits and working in an office, a nice office, and I had 210 agents to manage. And they were coming by my office and looking in the door and saying, Sawman, look at you. You look like a caged lion. <laughs> and I'm mouthing to them, shoot me, shoot me. Kill <laughs> me, please. And they're laughing. They're like, dude, you're, you're doing a great job, but you don't belong behind a desk. And boy, isn't that true? It's just not, it's not something that suits me. I believe in continuing education and, and uh, having all your paperwork squared away and all that kind of thing. But I believe in getting out and, and confronting that which is wrong. Those that are ruining life for all of us. You know, I, at the end of the day, I'm just a regular guy that wants to be left alone and have a peaceful life. But when I see people that will, for a dollar or for a piece of power, or for whatever motivation, just lust after power and greed and ruin this world for all of us, the, the evildoers, for whatever reason, I'm not one to turn away. And I, I just want to go stop them from wrecking everything. And that's kind of how I'm wired. So that's what drives me to, to do what I do, you know? And, you know, now with, with the, the, the mission that I've, I feel so strongly that I'm supposed to be doing when I, when I served in the military, who was I standing up to defend and protect, if not the most innocent and precious and helpless, defenseless of us all, the little children? And that's, that's something that's very real to me. So when I started learning about that, man, that's what, that's what gets me up early in the morning and keeps me up late working now is they're worthy of our protection. And right now, in so many cases, they don't have it. And, uh, it just should not be. It's just a strange and creepy and disappointing aspect of humanity that really uh, upsets me and it drives me to, to, to try to change it. So, Was that a thing when you were a kid? I mean, with, with bullies, did you were you always the one that jumped in and defended the kid? Did you stay away from that and kind of, you know, like you just said, stay to yourself? Or how was it as a kid coming up into before you went into the military service? I don't want to say I was some kind of selfless defender as a child. I don't think that was true. I was just a regular kid, um, you know, probably knuckleheaded in a lot of ways. But my big brother, he was five years older than me, and he he was rough, man. He 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 beat on me, and we we fought and wrestled a lot. Of course, I always lost because he's I'm six foot now, and he's six three. He was a southpaw, and the dude could hit, man. He could punch. And uh, Ian was always in, in great shape and everything. So he kind of roughed me up enough to where I wasn't willing for anybody else to rough me up. I was kind of over it. I was kind of sick of getting beat down. 
and so I was a little bit of a short fuse kind of guy. When uh, somebody else, man, a year or two or three years older than me, they wanted to mess with me and pick on the smaller guy, man, I would throttle them because they were they were nothing compared to my big brother. And I was used to fighting him until I was falling down and crying and beat to where I couldn't hardly get up anymore. So uh, that kind of it was was my start to defending myself. And in the movies, my family always liked when the bad guys got theirs at the end. The people that are ruining the freedom and liberty and ruining the security, the people, the bullies, we always just felt good when the bad guys got theirs, man. I love a good ending. And so I, maybe that's part of, you know, part of it too. And, and I had really good parents that, that taught us uh, that you, you, you want to work for a, a positive outcome in this world, you know, be part of the solution, not the problem. Well, I've heard uh, in an interview that I watched you do, um, you talk about uh, something that you've seen over and over is the biggest factor where you see this messed up and going down. And we'll get into it a little later on with your organization, but is a broken home, a father not being there. And of course, there needs to be a mother and a father. But what you've noticed that, that when the father's gone more often than not, that's when you see it go off the rails. Yeah, it's true. Uh, neither a mother or father can be replaced. They're both crucial. And God bless the parents that have to raise their child or children by themselves. That's tough work. And to do it well is, is nearly impossible by themselves. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for people that have to do it by themselves. But I think the ultimate design is a loving mother and father, a feminine strong, intelligent mother and a strong, masculine, protective, loving father. I, man, that combination can't be beat. And uh, the predators inherently and overwhelmingly target children where there is no father figure in the home. They look for it. That's their square one starting point. They choose their targeted victims by the lack of a, of a father figure. In the home so the poor children they're deserving of that protection but a lot of them don't have it so you know I don't want to just leave a bleak picture like all is lost if there's no father mothers you can be that protective presence you can be the intimidating hover mom and and make sure people know that the, that the coaches and the and the teachers and the people that have access to your kid that you are there, you're paying attention, you have an open dialogue with your children and nobody's gonna harm them or, or, or touch them. So um, it's not that it, it can't be done, but that's the nature, that's the MO of the perps that we have learned about is they, they target the ones where there's no man. Cause it's easy, it's a soft target, let's face it. They, they feel more confident when there's no man to, to catch them and throttle them. So, with having that family there and and you know your your father and your mother there i guess they supported you going into the military and fully backed you up or was it where they were a little nervous but still you know wanted you to make your own decisions but first i got i i got to understand how you picked the marine corps out of all of them because I've talked to a lot of different people and, and some of them say, man, that was who would take me. Uh, some say that's what I wanted to be the whole time. And it's so funny when you get this range of, of special operators that, that it's, 
you know, I talked to Eddie Gallagher, who was in the Marine Corps first before he was a Navy SEAL, and and he said that's some of the best years of his life were in the Marine Corps. They really set him on his path in the Navy. Yeah, the, the Marine Corps has an esprit de corps, a pride in their unit like no other unit has. I don't care if it's a guy that spent two days in the Marine Corps. If we're on a contract somewhere or we're on a operation and, and there's joint units there and there's anybody from the Marines, I don't care where we are in the face of God God's planet. And on 10 November, they are going to find a way to bake some sort of cake and have a, a Marine Corps birthday, and they're going to celebrate that, and uh, and we're going to sing the Marine Corps hymn, and they're you know they're going to include anybody that's ever been in the Marine Corps, and that's just the, the way that they do it. And so yeah, it, it's and their discipline as well. First of all, they're there to fight, and they're there to win, and they their history is to win, and and, and Iraq and so many other places. More recently, they've they've gotten a, a tremendous uh, success record still. So they should be proud because they're, they're an exemplary fighting force. And they're, I think their discipline is something that really kind of makes them, it's the culture, the death before dishonor culture and the, the discipline. So as a, as an example in Haiti doing some work there that, doesn't matter what kind of work it was. But later, I learned that the Haitians and the, the criminals there, they feared the Marines more than they feared any other units. You couldn't threaten these these crooks with, we're going to bring SEAL Team 6 in here, we're going to bring Delta Force, and we're going to bring, you know, CIA Grand Ground Branch guys, we're going to bring some other, you know, Spec Ops unit. They didn't care about that. But if a diplomat said, hey, look, man, you guys – keep jerking us around, we're going to bring in the Marines. It, they had, they got their attention. The Haitians were like, what? Don't bring the Marines. Well, the reason why is because the Marines discipline caused them to be incorruptible. And whenever the UN would come in, the, 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 the Haitian crooks could bribe their way through UN checkpoints. They could still conduct their criminal enterprise and business the way that they wanted. But when the Marines came in, it was done. You aren't coming through that checkpoint unless you have the proper authorization, and that's it. End of story. And so they were thwarted, and the Marines' discipline and their 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 honorable service were a huge obstacle for the bad guys, and that's why they feared them because the Marines would come and shut their stuff down. So, you know, I, I could see why Eddie's proud of his time in the Marine Corps. Um, you know, I am too, and it's uh, it's a great unit. And what looks better than Marine Corps dress blues, man? <laughs> I will agree. I, uh, something else I will agree uh, about that cake. And I tell you what, I, I got to tell you, I don't like that cake. And I'll tell you why. Because when I was in the police academy, it happened, the Marine Corps birthday, uh, they pulled every Marine out of my police academy class, only the Marines, and let them spend the afternoon eating cake and hanging out and kind of doing whatever they wanted to do. And I was so irritated that I was in the army that I didn't get to get out of class oh, yeah. That, yeah. that they, oh. but I, I understand exactly what you're saying. That esprit de corps. And it's, it's crazy. Even when you tell them, um, I think you say, uh, ex Marine, they say no old former Marine, not an ex Marine. Cause you're always a Marine. So I, I get absolutely what you're saying about that. 
in talking about that and going over from the Marine Corps into the Navy, it was coming across from the Marine Corps to the Navy. You were headed towards special operations right away, right? I mean, that's what you yeah, did it I, for. Yeah, I went into the Marine Corps to go into their force recon unit. Okay. I had a great job. I could have spent in my entire lifetime with the job that I had before I, I went in to, um, at least into the Navy. When I went in the Marine Corps, I had a pipe fitters union job with some high school buddies of mine, well, guys that I actually grown up with since elementary school. And the, the economy crashed there. It was in the, in the early 80s, and the oil field dropped. And so the Pipe Fitters Union was an old Pipe Fitters Union. It went out of business. The company that we were working for went out of business. And I'd been reading some articles about the Force Recon Marines, and I think it was Soldier Fortune. And I liked the discipline, the hardcore discipline. These are the silent warriors that just go in ahead of the invasion, and they do their reconnaissance. And uh, they report back, you know, with the radios to, to the invading landing force, all, all that they need to know. And uh, the unsung heroes, they just go in where nobody else dares ahead of everybody and, and report back and uh, quiet and uh, try not to make contact, you know, but they're ready to fight if, if they're compromised. So that called to me. I really liked that kind of hardcore, steely-eyed, silent killer, professional warrior. And, uh, and I got into the Marine Corps to do that and learned that, that that unit didn't have any funding or political backing at the time in the early 80s. They're like, yeah, of course, Recon's almost, they're trying to figure out whether or not to disband it. And um, they're not running any training courses or recruiting. They're just kind of hanging out and marking time. So the, they were saying, Craig, if you really want to operate, um, you should have gone to the Navy because they've got all the tools and the toys and the political backing and the funding. And um, I'm like, okay, well, how do I get there from here? And they said, you can't. So I did everything I had to get completely out of the Marine Corps and into the Navy. And I mean, you have to be absolutely bullheaded and, and clever and creative to get there from here because they said it couldn't be done. And I did. And I got to, to the Navy and I, uh, went back through boot camp and through a school, 10 months up in Chicago, Great Lakes, doing page long math equations half the night as fast as I could. I mean, I got pretty quick at math <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, went to buds and made it through, man. Uh, you know, buds is, buds was no joke, man. It was, uh, that was a gut check and it, it's meant to be, but boy, I was so happy there. That element of guys that thought like I did about being a warrior that had that extreme level of dedication and really wanted to go kick the pants out of the bad guys uh, so that they can't come here and ruin our freedom and liberty. That was motivating for me. And look, any job that you get to wear shorts, right? It's pretty cool. You know, work on the beach, wear shorts, blow stuff up. I mean, that, that's not bad. No, that's not a bad day at work at all. Uh, you know, it, it's amazing, though, that you say about the the recon guys didn't have any funding because that was right around heartbreak ridge the movie i mean you would think that you know that it was it was from watching the movie and stuff and of course it's a movie but you would think that that was a vibrant source in the marine corps at that time you know the way that they portrayed it and 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 all of those kind of things but i guess that that kind of falls into that category of 80s movies that you know really glorified I, I don't think we have that anymore where they really glorify oh, was, the military. It was probably six or eight years after that, that, that the, the, 
the Panama or not was it Panama the Grenada stuff that mm, happened. Right. I think that's what Heartbreak Ridge was kind of centered around. So that's when uh, I think JSOC was formed, or at least SOCOM, to learn the lessons learned from that that operation. And uh, Bo and some of those guys wrote some really smart SOPs based on that. Yeah, it was good. So you go over to the seals, you love it there. Uh, do you get right down to business or how is life as you come over there? Because I know when you hit the ground, you get done with bud, you've got to be just like biting at the, at the, you know, the bit trying to get into it. Uh, is that the way it is or is it slow pace getting into it? No, it was right in. I mean, we checked, you know, after buds, you go to uh, jump school three weeks it's it's really for us it's it should be three days of training but it was an army school so they, they come three days of training into three weeks <laughs> <laughs> so we marched around a lot and you know did some stuff there's a you know we would mess with the instructors a little bit because they didn't like us and uh i've heard that a couple a mustache, times you know, big old mustache and they didn't like that and they wanted me to shave it well it wasn't legal for them to force me to shave it so they would keep coming up to me and you know like my boots were immaculate right so i've been in the marine corps i knew how to spit shine boots my boots would look like they're ready for a battalion commander's inspection you know and they would come up and look at my boots and go yeah boots look pretty good but fail because something in that boot that's not right must be a reflection of that mustache <laughs> right and i'm like oh okay sure cool and uh, they were messing with me like that. So one of the, you know, there's a lot of stuff we'd do to mess with them back. But one of the things is I, I jumped on uh, the pull-up bar. So we would go, it was pre-dawn. We were going to go do some parachute landing falls. So there's a picture, a warehouse with no walls on it. It's open air, tin roof, you know, half the size of a football field. And there's pull-up bars outside all on one side. And they want you to do X number of pull-ups and then go in there and start warming up. And you're going to practice falling down so that when you land under a parachute, you know how to fall without breaking your legs. Well, I jumped up on there and I was stretching my back to try to get one of my rib heads to pop. So I just grabbed and I went to a dead hang and I just turned until it popped and I was going to bang out my pull-ups. But one of the Army instructors, the Black Hats, came over and said, Oh, do you mean to tell me you can't even do one pull-up? Navy here can't even do one pull-up. And so this group of those black hats came around. They started trying to make fun of me and humiliate me. You know, and I was like, do you guys not know that we could, we do these in our sleep? But I just, I, I just, <laughs> I'm looking at them and they're getting angry and they're like, like really want to have fun, making fun of this Navy guy. And I'm like, well, let me have a little fun with it. So I don't know if you can see this in the camera. I'm going to try to do it where you can see me. I reach up and I pull and I, and I go real slow and I go with my, my chin like this, like, ah, 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 ah. and they're like, what? You can only do one. Navy, you can only one. And, and, and there, it was, became this big thing. So all the students now are kind of looking over like, what's going on with this? And I did another one. I, ah, 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 ah. And they're making fun of me. They're laughing. And I, then I start going, Hey, but you know, once you get warmed up, that hey, this ain't so bad. And you're like, get off my bar, maybe. <laughs> I'm laughing at them. The guys are like, boo. So, uh, you know, we, we have our fun. So, yeah, good times. So you go to jump school, and then you go 
to the SEAL team. And at, and at that time, you know, they do it a little bit differently over the years. That time you check right into the team that you're going to operate with and be uh, assigned to. And there's six months of you learning to do things their way with their equipment and under their supervision. And it's like a bunch of big brothers and they're watching you and they're, they're looking to see if you're going to add up. Yeah, you're tough because you've been through butts, but are you smart? Can you learn? And what's your aptitude and what's your level of ability to contribute as a teammate? Because they, they want hardcore pipe hitters that are going to fight next to them and cover their six. And they don't want weaklings around them because they may not come home because, you know, you depend on your partner to cover your six and, and vice versa. So nobody wants weaklings there. So they're looking at you under really scrutiny, or a, a, a critical eye. And so we train and we get a series of uh, things checked off and, and qualified. And then there's a board where they evaluate you and they'll actually sit down and, and have a, a panel of people interview you and ask you questions about how a lot of things, technical things about how to conduct the job. How do you derig this type of thing? How do you stop this kind of malfunction? Uh, what would you do in this situation? Some of it's judgment. Like, what kind of head do you have on your shoulders? Are you a problem solver or solver? Are you a leader? Or, you know, what, what makes you tick? So they just kind of poke you through that process. And then once they're satisfied, they deliberate on it for another couple of weeks and then come back with a, a, a decision. And back then, usually it was you learned that you were going to make it when they tackled you and held you down and start taping you up and, and hazing you and spray painting your feet and you know, whatever funny, there's all kinds of funny stuff that happened. And, uh, so I got my trident in Kodiak, Alaska in uh, December or January and, uh, in the snow, I was, I was in the kitchen. We were, there's this big barracks type thing where we were all living together and I was trying to cook something. And these guys came in and just mobbed me and, and took me down from behind and, uh, pulled off most of my clothes. I think I had on a pair of boots and a hoodie sweatshirt that pulled up over my head and nothing on other than my boots and a bunch of tape and a bunch of food. And I think they poured whiskey on me and all kinds of stuff and drug me outside. I think I had a broomstick taped to me as well. And I was out in the, out in the snow, dragging me around and beating on me and, uh, pin my, pin my trident on me there. And, uh, I was one of them. And that was the day. And uh, my buddy Murph, too. Murph was a, a, a pretty hardcore Irishman. He had been a commercial fisherman before he came into the SEAL teams. And he and I had gone through buds together. And we got assigned to the same platoon. So Murph was a warrior. And it was an honor to get my uh, trident next to him. You know, he didn't fare any better than I did. He had a bunch of goofy stuff they did to him, too. We're looking at each other laughing. And so, yeah, that's how it happened, man. So once you're one of them, then they expect you to conduct uh, business at their level and learn constantly. Because by the time you learn enough through, through your SEAL career where you're pretty darn handy in most situations, because the SEALs handle a lot of different types of operations, once you have a pretty strong handle on all the different ones, your body's worn out and you're too old to, to, to do it physically anymore. So you got to learn quick. Would you say that's the day your life kind of changed was the day they pinned that on? Cause it, it gives you a whole new mission in life. Yeah. I don't see it as being that day. I think it was the day that, that, um, that I decided to go do that. Cause 
they were going to have to kill me to get rid of me. That was that was my mindset. Going through buds, you know, I saw so many guys quit because they were uncomfy, and that was unthinkable to me. I was there with a much more severe mindset and outlook. I'd already been through the Marine Corps. I'd read, I think there was only two books with anything about Navy SEALs back then available in the public, and they were hardcore Vietnam era Wasn't dudes. That were men with green faces, I think, is one of them. Maybe so. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So, um, and it, yeah, so anyway, I, I had a pretty severe outlook, and so that, that took good care of me. I mean, that's my... My buds instructors saw that in me and recognized it. And my, my SEAL teammates, you know, my senior enlisted guys saw that and they they treated me that way accordingly because they, they could see where I was coming from. So, I think it's pretty interesting, though, that you say that was the day your life changed, not the day that you actually became that, because I feel like that's all a buildup to that. At any point, yeah. it could have gone sideways on you. I would feel like, I guess the reason I asked the question was, is that kind of the day that you feel relief now, not relief that you're done because the work has just begun right then, but you feel accomplished. You feel like something is at least out of the way, but now the real work starts. I, I see where you're driving at and where you're coming from. It makes perfect sense, brother. But the reason I say it the way that I do that, it was, it was the decision. It was the mindset. I'm going to make this happen. Got it. This, I'm going to cause this to take place in my life. I'm yeah. going to become one of those steely eyed killers and I don't care what it takes. And for me, it was a hardcore decision. It was, it was already done. Now nothing's guaranteed. Your body can break in a thousand Absolutely. ways and all that. But for me, it was, it was settled before I even went off to boot camp. It was going to happen or they were, or I was, I was going to be dead. I mean, that's, that's the way that I saw it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it, there are several steps along the way at which you feel, I don't know if vindicated is the right word, but you feel satisfaction that the journey is making the progress that you're hitting the stepping stones that you need to hit to get where you want to be. And, uh, those feel good. Was there ever a time after you do this, after you make it, was there ever a stumbling block where you looked and you're like, oh, you know, or was it, I don't want to say smooth sailing, because of course it wasn't smooth sailing the whole way afterwards, but was there ever a point where it felt kind of a stumbling block or like you were kind of trying to play catch up or anything like that? Well, in, yeah, in buds. So I've got an ankle that had been torn. So all the tendons and ligaments had been in that, torn in that ankle and it was weak. And so going through buds, I had these, I had the stiffest fins that they offered because they were solid black and they looked tactical and I didn't know the difference between one fin and the, and the next. So I just took the ones they gave me and I tried to make the best of them. Well, I couldn't get enough torque out of that ankle because it was injured. So my, my ankle was flopping. It was flexing under the torque of that really stiff fin. And I didn't realize until I made it through buds the hard way and got to SEAL Team 1 that another guy that, that was an expert swimmer showed me a shorter, floppier fin that guys with either thin ankles or, or thinner legs or, or um, injured joints can actually get better propulsion out of and swim faster than they can with the big stiff ones. And that changed my life. 
So I was struggling through buds. I, I set a couple records on the obstacle course. I was the top shooter in my class and I was up there near the top runners. I think there was only two or three, maybe four guys that could outrun me on the four mile time to run. So I was a runner. I liked it and, you know, I was doing well with the tactical stuff and, and kind of showing them what I was made of and what I, why, what I was there to contribute. But that swim time, I was either barely passing or barely failing the swims. Well, they don't know why. They just know that if, if you're not passing a swim, you're probably not putting out enough effort. So they send you to a remedial training uh, evolution for about two hours. It's basically swim torture where they just crush you in the pool. You're swimming with your shirt in one arm and pants in the other with a mask full of water and swimming with your boots in each hand and just doing races back and forth, back and forth. They're trying to strengthen you and harden you in the water and cause you to be a stronger swimmer so you don't fail any more swims out there. Well, you're already overtraining in PUD, so what you really need is rest, you know. But for me, it was it was hard, brother, because it was, it was emotionally hard on me because I wanted it so bad that to have the buds instructors think that I just wasn't putting out on the swims when I was giving my absolute heart and soul for that entire 50 minutes or however long it was that, that two mile open ocean swim, that was, that was emotionally very upsetting and painful for me. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't say anything to cause them to, to understand how badly I wanted it, how hard I was putting out. All they had to judge by was a stopwatch. And that sometimes I was there on time, sometimes I, I quite wasn't. And uh, so they, they rolled me back a class and I had to do a bunch more swim training and finally I made it through. But that was, that threatened to to cause me not to make it through Bud's, man, because, you know, like the, the captain in charge of Bud's training, uh, Bailey, I talked to him now. He's, he's he's a great guy, but he didn't understand. He walked by and he goes, how come your swimming is all screwed up, son? He used another word for it at the time, but I didn't know why. I just knew that I couldn't get enough speed no matter how hard I tried. So, And I'd swam two miles a night for 10 months up in A school up in Chicago after school. I would go there and swim two miles as hard as I could, side stroke, underwater recovery stroke, and I was blazing fast without fins, but once they put fins on me, I went from the front of the pack in buds to the back. And uh, later when I went to SEAL Team 1, I put the fins on and went back to the front of the pack. So there's always something to challenge anybody in buds. I have yet to find one stud who says, oh, yeah, every, every single thing was easy because it's not. Well, and 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 I I would take that question even further into your career as a SEAL. Were were you always trying to go to DevGrew? Were you always trying, or were you happy where you were at, or did you see that as the next kind of mountain to overcome? I saw DevGrew kind of as the same way I saw the SEAL teams in general. Like when I was in the Marine Corps, when I was in high school, I'd heard of maybe SEALs, but not often. And it was just kind of like a legend thing. And you didn't know if it really existed or how many there were or what it took to get there. You know, I had a guy that told me that, you know, that it was such extreme training to, to train Navy SEALs that uh, it's almost like inhumane uh, what, what they went through. And it was just really should be considered impossible. And so when I went, got, went, went into the SEAL teams, I knew about SEAL Team 6, but 
I didn't know, again, if it, it was kind of a legend, like those guys are the Jedi. And I didn't know what level of talent or, or strength or speed or contribution was required to get there. I just knew that it was cool. <laughs> that was a higher level of warrior. And, and uh, I didn't really have it on my mind so much. I just wanted to operate. I wanted to serve and kick the pants out of the bad guys. And I wanted for my teammates, you know, at the end of my career to, to be like glad that I was on their team and that for us to come back from operations and have them been glad that I was next to them and the glad to see me next to them in the helo when we're inserting and that kind of thing, you know, okay, right on sawman's here. This is, that's a good thing. You know, that's all I wanted to make my contribution and fight next to them and, and give. And, uh, I saw that I, I was able to do some things. I, I was motivated. I could shoot and I could run, I could fight and I could drive. And those things kind of added up to where, man, after Desert Shield, Desert Storm, I, I'd shown what, I, what I'm like when in a combat situation and my leaders, you know, wrote me up for some very nice things. And um, I got recommended for DevGrew and, I put in my request package and got screened and ultimately I got picked up and spent the rest of my career there among overachievers to my left and right guys that were again, like thought like I did uh, crush it, crush the mission, anything that you're given, any assignment you're given overachieve it, just crush it. And uh, it was fantastic. Most amazing experience. So I'm, I'm grateful to have served among such legendary warriors it was um, surreal in a lot of ways so when you served in dev grew did you ever did you ever have the feeling that you maybe didn't measure up to these guys or that you had to work harder to measure up to them or were you always pretty strong i mean you're in talking to you and all the times we've talked you're pretty strong of mind but was there ever that kind of nagging at the back of you like man these guys are really making me work. There were a lot of things that were challenging, but I, I felt, um, I felt at home there. I felt like very much part of the brotherhood. In fact, I was always innovating new ways to rig up my equipment to make it smarter in the, in the dark of night underwater, um, just to be quicker to be more instinctive with my gear. And the other guys saw that and respected it and liked it. And I, I was looking, quite frankly, after a while, for a, a higher level still to see where, is there another smaller unit than this? Because as a sniper, you're you're really kind of elevated from the assault team into a smaller unit where you have more autonomy, less supervision, you have more equipment and more responsibility. So it is, uh, and you have to have an additional skill. Um, and so that was a little bit like a, like an elevation, but I was looking for something else. I was looking for, you know, CIA ground branch, things like that. Where is it that I can go that um, we just straight up taking out bad guys all the time? And uh, they said, hey, this is it. You're, you're a tier one unit, uh, us and Delta, that's it. There's no, there is nobody higher. Uh, you can go do different stuff with another agency or something, but it's not its not like what you're doing here. And it's certainly not better. It's not more than. 
And I was like, wow, well, oh, okay. So I stayed until mama started having babies. She's like, okay, we, we're pregnant. And so that's when I started thinking, okay, I've got to kind of figure out the next phase of my life because it was during peacetime and I was doing stuff in other countries that was good work, but I couldn't see where it was helping my country and making my family safer. And nobody in the intelligence community or the military could answer my questions to my satisfaction on why it made sense for us to be in certain countries doing certain things against other people. I'm like, what does us operating against those guys have to do with United States national security? Oh, well, you know, the political blah, 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 blah. There's all this razzle dazzle. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. <sighs> fail. Logic fail. Why are we here? And nobody could answer. I got frustrated. I'm like, this doesn't make sense to me. I love the guys, but there's a lot of political buffoonery going on. Bill Clinton was president. So um, I don't know that it was all because of that, but some of it. Well, he was busy. He had a lot of stuff going on in the Oval Office. He was, uh, he was a super busy man. So, uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so there, there was a lot of deceit going on. Uh, even, even the reason that we backed the, well, I don't want to get into that. Um, the reason that the U.S. changed who they backed in a certain conflict was due to a an operation that was a false flag operation of deceit. And they got to be on the ground and, and witness uh, where it happened and how and all that. And it, it literally changed which side of that conflict that the U.S. Uh, sided with. So it was, I was just kind of sickened by that. Anyway, I still love the operations, but I just, I wanted it to count for something. I wanted to defend my family and defend my homeland. I didn't want to defend someone else's homeland, you know, with my life. I wasn't there to throw my life away. I was there to serve in a way that made sense. And so, yeah, once, once we were going to start having kids, my parents were home for me. They went to my track meets and martial arts tournaments and football games, baseball games, and um, even later on motocross races. And uh, I wanted that for my kids. And so I needed to be home to do that. I was gone about 300 days a year at that level. And so I'm like, okay, it's time for a next phase of my life, a shift. So I went into the air marshal service where I could still serve in a counter-terrorist capacity, but uh, be home a, a lot more to raise the kids. So that's that's what ended my time at DevGrew is, uh, is uh, moving on uh, to another phase of my life and, and profession where I could be home a little bit more to raise my kids so they grow up problematic like some of my buddies' kids did there at the unit. So. That's what I did. I, I think we should point out, though, uh, I, I have one more question about your military service, but I want to point out you talking about the air marshals. You didn't just go to the air marshals. You were one of the original 33 air marshals uh, before 9-11 ever happened, and you spent five years there. So you were there, I mean, at the the birth of this thing. Um, yeah. Well, what, do you notice, little... what do you I'm notice? What do you notice? No, no, no. I just wanted to ask about the air marshals before I ask the final question about your military with the air marshals before nine 11, what did you see uh, in how we trained, how we operated, how we did things as opposed to now, what was, I guess what was the, the question would be, what was the mission 
uh, focus of the air marshals back then because I think it took a complete change after 9-11. It, it did undergo a tremendous metamorphosis after 9-11, but before then it was run much better, much more intelligently. The director was a Marine officer, Marine Corps, or Navy, I mean, I'm getting my words tangled up, a Vietnam veteran Marine Corps officer. Uh, Greg was his name. Uh, he was an intelligent man. He respected his troops and his troops respected him. And he flew on missions with us in the Air Marshal Service. He trained with us and uh, we respected him as one of us. He knew the job, so he led from the front. He was not a bureaucrat and he was a patriot and he had been, he was a combat veteran. And, and uh, so it, it was good. We trained well, we trained with other agencies we, the, the pistol qualification was the highest qualification standard of any law enforcement in the country. Um, and so our tactical pistol qualification course was, was no joke. And some of us were acing that course just barely, but we could, you know, on our good days, we could ace that course. And, um, you know, we liked him, but then after, 9-11, they brought in a bunch of bureaucrats and swatted the guy out of the way that, that actually knew the job and brought in a bunch of weenies that um, were just frantic idiots, quite frankly. And the first one got fired for spending half a million dollars uh, decorating his office. And then his idiot protege, who he trained to be just like him, came in and hired 200 idiots out of the bottom, the dregs of the, out of the bottom of a couple of other agencies that nobody wanted. And those became the top 200 um, managers in the air marshal service. And it just went down, downhill immediately, like the swirling the toilet. And so they kept getting cat caught up in a bunch of scandals and, uh, just gross mismanagement ensued. And I ended up blowing the whistle on a, a guy that had came, come from the FBI. He was one of the top ranking FBI SES level executives. And, um, he was anyway, a bad history there for him, uh, a bunch of scandals that he got involved in. And then uh, he was no longer in the, Air, the FBI. And then the new director of the Air Marshal Service hired him to run the Las Vegas field office of the Air Marshal Service. And uh, the reason why was to, to write an MOU between the FBI and the Air Marshal Service. So they were terrorists, we would arrest them on the bird, hand him off to the FBI on the deck. Made sense, except for this guy was a bureaucrat and a deep state crook, and he never did write that MOU that I, that I know of. I remember so, about two years later, he was laughing about it to a friend of his. <laughs> I never did write that thing. I'm still here. <laughs> so he thought it was funny, but that he was still able to keep a job, that the paycheck for which he was not earning, and uh, the, the purpose for which to write that MOU He'd never done. So he, he was laughing about having gamed the system. But he decimated that field office. He chased off. There were 210 agents there. He ran off everybody except for, I think, 30, like 32 guys. Everybody just left. They're like, up yours, guy. This is, this is stupid. So I guess my question would be for that, with the MOU, for people that are listening, that's a memorandum of understanding between agencies. 
Um, what would that entail? Because usually the memorandums of understanding say, like, if we take this amount of money, you'll get this amount, we get this. Was it just for we take custody of these guys and we hand them off to you? Or what What was the whole point of an MOU with them? Well, it would have been a procedural okay. document that walked through all the standard operating procedures of how we would make that turnover you know, paperwork, all that stuff, all, right. everything that would have been required before and after, I'm sure would have been involved in it. It would have probably been a significant um, body of work. But, um, you know, again, there was there was there was no adult supervision. And so he did whatever he wanted. So let's move on to where you start to get famous. Uh, and by famous, I mean, you start being on TV. You are actually the most requested expert on Top Shot. Is that correct? The, the most frequent one. The, yeah, the most frequent expert. Yeah. So I, I got to say, I won't tell the whole story, but the only reason I wanted to go into Hollywood was be a, to be a tech advisor. Right. To train the actors on which weapon this this character should have, how he would handle it, how he would move and fight, and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, and I kept getting pushed out in front of the camera. And uh, Top Shot was a an example of that and top shot somebody sent me an application it said extreme physical challenge i'm like okay i'm used to that at dev Drew, we used to put together monster mashes that were like 10 evolutions you know 10 different training things you know all strung together as a massive stress course and and you know assembling weapons and climbing huge climbing walls and you know underwater swims and all this kinds of stuff strung together you switch from one task to the next and uh Man, I was I was used to that, and I I loved it. And I thought, okay, extreme physical challenges. Yep, yep, yep. Any weapon you have to be able to fire or launch or shoot any kind of weapon, crude or sophisticated. I'm like, yeah, man. I reckon this is my show to win. And uh, hundred thousand dollar grand prize. I'm like, man, I could sure use a hundred thousand dollars. So I pitched in my application, and they called me, and they're like, yeah, we're looking at this and your background, and uh, yeah, we're we're asking that you not compete, but be our our main expert because <laughs> it's kind of like a co-host and we want to have you back on for multiple seasons and in the end we think it's going to be the best deal for you i'm like well how much does that pay because i'm looking at paper here that says a hundred thousand dollars and i figure i can win that and they're like yeah well it's just you just need to trust us and so you know in hindsight uh, my buddy ian Harrison, he is the editor of Recoil Magazine. He won that first uh, season. He did a fantastic job. And, you know, I've been friends ever since I, I met him. Love him. Great guy. And um, I, I don't I don't regret the decision that I made because I was on all five seasons of, of Top Shot for that reason. And I got to meet all the competitors and I got to – you know, work with all the phantom cam guys, the, the guys that, that shoot the really high-speed uh, cameras that capture the, the, the slow-motion shots where the bullet just right. comes right by the, the camera lens and perfect uh, focus and all that stuff. That was a lot of the times that was me getting to, to shoot those, those shots with the cameraman. I just really enjoyed that. And so, um, you know, congrats to Ian. He did a fantastic job and, and all the other winners and uh i think i made the right decision because i ended up really enjoying the the expert uh, position so that's 
that's how it started. I ended up in front of the camera and then, you know, then Arlie Ermey invited me to be on Gunny Time with him. And I got invited to go over to South Africa to shoot Rhino Wars and to protect the, the rhinos there and, you know, so a couple movies and had some fun at it. I had some fun at it. Well, let's talk about Rhino Wars for a minute. Um, I, I want to point out that it was you two other Navy SEALs and a Green Beret. Now, of course, the Green Beret was probably the best guy in the team. Uh, he was also the the medic, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we don't have to, you know, argue about who is the best. I know who is the best. You don't have to tell me of the team. My my real question to it is, though, how do you pick those guys? Uh, is, is it guys that you know? Is it guys that you think would be good for it? H how do you go about picking those guys? Well, look, I know, I know literally at least 50 SF medics, all of them great guys. Unfortunately, I, I chose the wrong one for that, that, uh, that task. And boy, am I sorry. But um, the way that I chose the other guys was uh, Rob had gone through buds with me and then he had been at dev group with me. So uh, he was my intel guy. And uh, Jeff, I'd worked in another on a contract with that we don't talk about. And then uh, he went with me to to Africa, and he's done stuff with me uh, for Vets for Child Rescue as well. And I know, you know, I've got dozens and dozens of guys that want to come and do more with us. It's just we have to have a lot of what we do now is investigative, right. so we're not kitting up all the time. And when we do, it's only one or two or three or four guys. We don't need 10, 15 dudes. Uh, but when we do, I can, I have a bunch of guys that I've, I've operated with for many, many years who right there, just a, a text away and they'll say any, anytime, anywhere. So, so that's, that's pretty cool. The one SF medic, I, I've met him in a train. So I, I did we push both, you into saying it then. I'm glad I yeah, pushed well, you into we, we saying both, this. We were both instructors at a training course. He was on the on the medic side of the training course, and I was uh, on the range side with some other spec ops veterans training guys with belt-fed machine guns and, and ARs and pistols. And uh, we'd go eat lunch together sometimes. And, uh, you know, I had this big look to him, and, and uh, he knew that I was doing some film and television work in between contracts. Because uh, at the time, I was, I was contracted for an agency that we don't talk about then. And he said, hey, saw, last time I saw him, he goes, hey, if you need, uh, you know, scarred up old ugly, scary villain character for anything you ever do, you know, don't forget about me. And I said, hey, you know what? I will, brother. I'll, I'll remember you. And I reached out to him to, to, to do him a favor and, and bring him in. I figured they would love the way that he looked. And, of course, they did. But, um, man, Hollywood is a despicable industry with some weak character people and the way that all that all went bringing him in there he betrayed us immediately and he was just he's just a man of weak character again almost every single army medic that i've met have been great guys and he was just one of weak character very selfish not a team player and uh the guys my guys wanted to kill him man my team was like get him out of here man this guy's worthless so um unfortunate but still overall we had a great uh, trip and you know I had a list of other medics that I was going to bring instead when we when we went back to film more of it and ultimately uh, it was Animal Planet they didn't they didn't choose to pull the trigger on 
making the entire series. I think because we were a little unwieldy to control. Usually, if a network wants to show like you know Jersey Shore or something like that, they've got teenagers that are desperate to be on TV. Right. And we were seasoned operators that we didn't care about being on TV. We wanted right. to go operate and save the, the rhinos and 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 bus poachers. And um, so that they found us uh, unwieldy. They weren't able to jerk us around with the way that they would younger people that they call talent, you know, people that just want to be on right. TV. So I think they, uh, they had their hands a little bit full and realized that, that, that uh, it wasn't going to go their way. They wanted a, a silly show where it was kind of like squabbling between my teammates instead of real world operations between us and the poachers. And there was just a, I think, a conflict of interest on who wanted what, and we we didn't want to be part of anything that was not honorable and legit. So uh, we we ran legit ops, and then uh, they made their decision. They didn't pull the trigger, so it ended up being a three part special, which I think uh, did some good. Our operations so. there did some good. It definitely it scared the poachers out of one of the reserves there for six months. There was no more. Rhinos lost in that reserve for six months after we were there with our patrols and our captures and our, our show force there and the knowledge that we were there. You know, we, of course, we were rolling these big armored Riva uh, trucks, you know, and we're fully kitted up and uh, multicam and everything so that the poachers weren't used to that. You know, they were used to one or two Rangers, but maybe right. with a bolt rifle or something, but not a team of uh, spec ops pipe hitters that have come get them in the dark, you know. Let's move on to what you're doing now. Uh, and and the way I want to do this, I want to go kind of back and forth because I think they kind of intertwine with each other. Let's talk about the movie Contra Land, but let's talk about Veterans for Child uh, Rescue. And I want to go back and forth between them. Now, we had talked before. I sent you a message and I asked if, if we could talk about this one part. Uh, you said that it was okay if we did. I don't want to get deep into the weeds about it, but I want people to understand that this is not just a thing for you. This is not a gimmick for you. This is real world. It means something personally to you. And I want to start with that because I think it, 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 it gives a whole basis for everything you do right now. And I think it will give people a, a better appreciation for why you do what you do. So if we can start, uh, will you kind of just explain and I'll, I'll, I'll tag some stuff along the way and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Well, <clears throat> we had decided to start this organization. All I wanted to do was film a documentary to alert the populace to a major crime spree, an evil crime spree that destroys the lives of countless children here in the United States, a covert domestic operation of child trafficking. And I realized that the public didn't know it. And that's why it was so easy for the traffickers. This is a public were unwitting. And I wanted to ruin that dynamic for the traffickers. And so I put in the paperwork to found Veterans for Child Rescue so we could rally the money. And it's a nonprofit org to make the documentary to alert the populace so that we could change the culture and rescue all of our children from this crime spree. And I was in bed one night and I woke up to my wife um, crying and she had the phone to her head and she said, oh my God, baby, it's Aspen, she's been raped. 
and uh, Aspen had uh, she she it was a fragile time in her life. I'll just I'll say that she had just turned eighteen and she'd just been through some. Um, well, she'd been through it about a depression and she'd had to have some, some help for it. And so we were loving on her and keeping her close. And she went to go out with some friends and we were worried about her. And are you, is, are you sure it's not too soon? Are you okay, baby? Yeah, 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 I'm good. I'm, you know, I want to get out and live my life. And she went out. So she had, um, she'd gone in a Subway sandwich shop and she went to go use the restroom and then she was going to come out and get in her car and follow some of her friends over to their house. Well, when she walked out of the door, this guy put his arm around her and put a knife right to her side. And we've got, we've seen the videotape and everything now, security footage. But uh, what happened next was a nightmare for her and it, and it was hours and hours long in multiple locations, several locations around that part of town. He would walk her to one place and uh, do this thing again, violate her in ways that, um, you know, shouldn't happen. And uh, when, so my wife could not sleep because Aspen was out there and uh, my wife Tressa couldn't sleep. So she was up and she was over in the living room. And that's why I didn't hear the phone ring. And so, um, and a ringer might have even been off, but she she picked it up and I could hear our daughter screaming for the phone. And it was, uh, it was upsetting to hear that sound from, from my daughter. And so I woke up and spun into action gear and um, I asked for cross streets you know, where was she? Which direction was she headed? She was heading home. What street was she on? She couldn't quite say what cross street. Just give me a name of a cross street because I was calling the sheriff's department and getting them to try to vector in if they could intercept her quicker than I could get there because I'm getting dressed as I'm on the phone and I didn't know who could get to her sooner. Well, she was, come to find out, she was blowing through red lights and everything. Um, and she was boogieing home. And so one sheriff deputy came to the house before she was got there, but then she got out of the car. We grabbed her, we brought her into the house and um, started some just preliminary questioning on, you know, injuries and immediate pressing threats. And um, started the, the initial report, the sheriff's department and, uh, made the decision, we went to take her to the hospital uh, to be checked. And uh, that's when we had the family discussion. Um, as, as traumatized and upset as she was, I asked her, I said, sweetie, do you wanna just put this behind you? Or do you, are you inclined to fight back? There's no wrong answer. You tell us where you're at with this because that's gonna determine how we proceed tonight you know, in the hospital. And she immediately said, Oh, Papa, I'm fighting back. He can't, he can't be allowed to do this to anybody else ever again. That SOB. And <clears throat> I was so proud. You know, I, the way I tell the story is I was very calm. I'm like, yeah, that's, 
That's good. That's a good decision, Aspen. I respect that. But on the inside, I was the papa that was still dancing around. Woo! I was so proud that she she had it in her to make sure that this predator. Then again, this is our family culture of, of crushing the bad guys and putting it into their reign of terror. This guy was a serial rapist. And so her decision to take him out, to, to put an end to his reign of terror, was one for which I had a lot of thanks and pride for her. I was a strong young lady that, that made that decision. And she was not conflicted about that decision. It wasn't maybe. She was adamant, and I was like, yes, girl, that's what I'm talking about. So she handled it that way uh, from then on, and uh, she's strong, man. She's She's been through a lot. She's been traumatized, but she's uh, she's a strong young lady. She's got an iron willpower. So God help anybody that really gets in her way when she makes a decision. Something's going to happen because it's going to take place. It's going to happen. I'm glad, I'm glad for that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I have all daughters myself. I have no sons. Um, and you, you reach a point where you have this conflict as a father of you want to protect them, but you know that you can't protect them 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And then something like this happens, especially to a guy like you that has crushed enemies all around the world, taken down the person that hurts people. So, I mean, if you don't mind talking about it, I, I want to get inside your head for a minute and just what's going on in your head about this, because I, I got to imagine that it's 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 destroy, destroying you from the inside just because of how you've handled stuff for your entire life. And then you come to this and, and it all rests on her taking care of it. Yeah, well. You, you've been in the military and, and law enforcement, so you'll understand this little snippet. So the detectives were talking to us before the sun eater even came up in the hospital. Aspen was back with the doctors, getting uh, going through the rape kit, the, the examination, the extensive interview and examination, which we had warned her about. Like, hey, if you're going to fight back, you got to go through this extensive and uh, invasive examination process because that's how they get the evidence to put him away and it's not fun sweetie but if you want to fight back that's part step of what one means. that's step one that's step one and if you don't do it you've lost your weapons against him or a lot of them and so she understood so she was back there um making it happen and uh the detectives asked uh, are you the husband i said yeah i'm the husband and they said, oh, well, it'll probably take us a long time to figure out, you know, who did it to find him. So just, you know, relax and be patient, you know, and, uh, you know, if we ever catch him, we'll, we'll you know, we'll find him. And, I, and my wife starts chuckling and they're looking at me like, what's she laughing at? And I said, hey, look, you don't have that kind of time if you're going to beat me to him. And, and she's like better listen to him. They said, will you excuse me for a minute? And they went outside. About 20 minutes later, they came back in and they said, Mr. Sawyer, we're going to make this our first priority. She said, they ran your name. I'm like, of course. And so um, they realized that they they had a, a situation where there was a, a father that had the capability to go, if 
find this guy and modify him um, before I turn him turn him over to law enforcement. I offered to deliver him to them, but uh, I don't remember <laughs> yeah. my exact words. But that uh, he, I was going to modify him to my satisfaction. He wouldn't arrive the way that absolutely they thought he his arrangement would have been a little probably different. But they they understood what that meant, and uh, Dev Grow operator tells you that. Uh, you, you better pay attention. So they, to their credit, they said, I forget how many hours they said, give us 72 hours or something like that. Please just, just don't, don't do anything. Let us do this our way. Uh, we're going to make this a priority. And they did Well, they did SWAT team raid on the house. Um, ultimately uh, he wasn't there when they did that, but uh, another patrol officer, made a, a chance contact stop uh, just to see. Thought he might have recognized him, and sure enough, it was. So that was good police work. And I'm in, forever indebted to Tucson Police Department for, for that. SWAT team guys, the patrol officer, um, and all of those that have responded since with this destructive boyfriend later, um, and my, my daughter, you know, they've had to respond on her behalf. It's just, oh man, daughters, bro. Uh, but um, yeah, they, they've put in some good work and I appreciate them. So that's how that went. They, they got him. And so um, two and a half years later, so there's a judge and there, here's a different part of the legal system. Judge was very soft and treated this guy like it was his long lost son because this guy had been a juvie and repeat rapist and so I guess the Javier John Lopez is the judge that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, imagine a rapist who'd gone through 14 public defenders and ultimately allowed to defend himself saying to the judge in the, in a court of law in front of a room full of people saying, Whoa, Javier, you've changed, bro. Call him the judge by his first name. Whoa, bro. Really Javier, you've changed, bro. Wow, man. And the judge not saying, you'll shut your mouth or we'll cuff you and drag you out of this courtroom, young man. Never talk to him. Like Talk to him so stuff. Oh, well, form it in the form of a question. Just spoke to him so gently and lovingly. Uh, and I'm not going to condemn a, a, a judge for speaking in a soft manner to somebody, but I will criticize the lack of control in a courtroom when a serial rapist is berating his rape victim, who's who's a young lady, five foot tall, and he's accusing her of all kinds of horrible things that aren't true. Two and a half hours on the stand, right? Yes, sir. Well, over two hours and uh, at least. And uh, I, I'd say there need to be some hard questions asked. There were a lot of people that had a lot of things to say about how that courtroom was run, but how mad can I really be? Because in the end he was sentenced to, I think it's like 68 years or something. Guilty on all seven counts, uh, five counts of yeah. sexual assault, uh, uh, aggravated kidnapping, guilty and, uh, guilty of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. So five counts of sexual assault, aggravated kidnapping and aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, guilty on all counts. Yeah. A good thing in your behalf though, when you say that the judge was lenient on him or was easy going on him through the trial, it's going to be very hard to mount a, a, a rebuttal that 
he got a mistrial or that he got anything done to him in court that would uh, wave a jury or wave a judge. I mean, that that is if you can look at any silver lining in the cloud of it, that would be one of them. That's true. That's true. And that's why, you know, I don't want to get too emotional as a father and too critical because I've never been a judge and I haven't been in his shoes. So um, I, I obviously I wanted this guy throttled. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that he is put away really for life and uh, there should be no reason to ever let him out, um, then I'm grateful for that. So and then our daughter. So she testified so professionally. And I want to share this. This is this matters to me as a as a man and as a father. One of the proudest moments of my life is anything that I've done. It's something that my daughter did. When this when this rapist decided he wanted to interview me on the stand. It came up like that. I want to interview the father. They're like, okay. Uh, after the break, bring the father in. And I grabbed the the prosecutor. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, look, man, I'm a federal criminal investigator. I'm trained to give uh, testimony on the on witness stand. But I, and I, I've even done expert witness for forensic evidence on capital murder cases. But that's that's in a different capacity. Now I'm a father. I'm an unwilling witness. I'm there. I, I'm, I don't want to, I'm not making any money. I'm not there uh, as a profession. I'm there as a father and a victim and the father of a victim. And I am red line ticked off. And so what is it that I can say? And what is it that I can't say? She goes, well, anything that you want to say is going to give him a mistrial. And here's, the, here's why I told this whole story, brother. She said to me, the prosecutor said to me, when in doubt, follow your daughter's lead. I could have died right then. I'm like, I'm proud of my baby girl. She said she did that good, Craig. She did that good. And uh, I wasn't in the courtroom to see her testify because, uh, you know, the rapist exercised his rule to dismiss me from the courtroom uh, when he berated my daughter after raping her repeatedly with a weapon. So what she did was speak the facts in a way that later the expert witnesses came in with the forensic DNA and the video and every other kind of evidence and proved what she said 100% accurate and what he had claimed completely bogus. And so she, she destroyed him. She took down her rapist by speaking the straight truth in a factual, accurate manner. One of my best days of my life. Yeah. I, I would have to say, I mean, best and worst days of your life. I well, mean, yeah. To, yeah, but I was just so proud. I mean, I've been through a lot of ugly stuff. Absolutely. I you know, one of the one of the things that was upsetting for me was they had little squishy toys. One looks like a pair, like a dice. One's like a little unicorn or a milk carton or something like that. But they're they look like a toy, but they're really foam. Right. And you squeeze it. And it's a stress toy. And the prosecutor gave it to my 
the ladies in my family even gave me one like hey if you get ticked off squeeze this and so you can sit still in your chair you know and uh when the trial started and this rapist is up there running his mouth and lying about things um, i looked at her and she aspen was sitting right next to me here on my left she was stone cold stoic and i felt a nudge and it was my wife she was on my right going look and she looked down at aspen's knees i looked at her knees the knees were just sick but from the waist up she kept it rock solid man like a rock well i mean and, and you Amazing would know yeah, absolutely and you would know better than anyone how you stare down a bully is you stare down a bully and that's exactly yeah. what you're saying she did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but seeing her knees shaking like that, that I almost lost it for a minute. That was the hardest part of the, the, the trial for me. See my baby girl's knees going like that. So how do you get past that? How did you get past that? Uh, I I just I just do do the same thing I do during any stress test or any critical skill under adverse conditions. I just I just breathed and thought about um, the task at hand, and I knew that you know Aspen needed a, a rock strong, solid family around her, and uh, to pay attention, and to be there for her, and to show her strength and support and it wasn't about me so i felt a lot of things but i just choked it down for her so that's how i got past it i thought about her and what she her what her needs were I, you know I, I would have loved to have done all kinds of things i would have loved to have flown around that courtroom like a monkey you know a spider monkey <laughs> When they sentenced him, I can't remember how many sheriff's deputies they had in that courtroom. And I, I want to say it's like nine. Um, but uh, it was a lot, you know. Um, but, you know, I just, obviously, I was wearing a business suit. And I just was calm and, and took, the, uh, took the information as it came. But I think they were, who knows what they were preparing for, but they just wanted to be ready just in case. We fast forward now. All this happens. Uh, it changes your family's life immeasurably. You get this organization going. You start doing good. Um, you're you're taking down. I mean, you've made arrests in Utah, Connecticut, Texas. You've taken down rings of these people. But my question is, doing this, and like I said, we'll go back and forth. There's a section in Contraland where <clears throat> you're talking to someone and you're you're describing this guy. And so he shows up in a minivan with uh, child seats in there and he comes inside and he's going to talk to this woman. And, and she says, can I get you a drink? She goes to the back. You come out, you start to talk to him. He gets that rabbit look in his eye and he starts to bolt for the door. My question to you, after hearing everything about your family, how do you, because it's, it affects you differently than other people. How do you not handle yourself in front of this guy when you see him and you see child car seats and you know 
what is going to happen if you and your team are not there or you and what you're doing doesn't happen? You know what's going to happen, whether it be at that moment or a week from now or a month from now or a year from now, you know something is going to happen. How do you keep it in check? Because that's kind of a continuation of you kept it in check for the trial. Now, how do you keep it in check in the wild? Well, again, it's self-discipline, but but the reason, the motive for that was professionalism. Okay. We were there. We, we have anywhere from five to nine agencies involved in our joint operations. And I've briefed all these guys on what's going to go on. And the takedown teams have their sequencing, and they have their angles and fields of fire. And I can either work with them or against them. And so, look. Tier one level operator, man, we we're, we dirt dive everything. We choreograph and we learn the smartest ways to skin a cat tactically. And so when I'm working with these law enforcement guys, I'm 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 doing my part as a as a concerted part in a joint operation. They know exactly what I'm gonna do, and I know exactly what they're gonna do, and that's what we do. We we plan our operation and then we carry it out that way. So um, I I do my part so that everything goes as we planned it so that it's smooth and I'm not in somebody's field of fire. I don't cause some sort of obstruction. And uh, you know, I'm always prepared to defend myself. So that that's that's a little bit different scenario, but as long as I'm not directly drawn down on or attacked um, my portion of that operation is over once I hand the perpetrator over to the takedown team. Once I, I initiate the takedown sequence, um, and there's the different, there's a list of different ways that we can initiate that. But I, I, I initiate that uh, for the takedown team, and then they they take over the operation from from then on. So I'm out. I'm done. So. That's how I'm, I'm able to do that. And I'm thinking of the bigger picture, too. Keep in mind, law enforcement, imagine you do the wrong thing. Well, you've screwed up the operation. Maybe the guy gets loose. Then what good have you done? If you exercise yourself, well, I was angry, so I wanted to, you know, I wanted to kick the guy upside the face or, or whatever, or flip him and break his back. Well, and I, now he's paralyzed, and you've got you to gotta buy him. You've got to pay for his hospital care or, Whatever. Right. You know what I mean? And and here's the thing. I, I, I get what you're saying, Craig. I, I completely understand, especially from the background that I come from. But it's different for you. There are law enforcement there. This is a mission for you. This is not I, I, I understand completely what you're saying about law enforcement and how you have to do this. You have to give yourself some credit, though. It takes a lot of willpower to do what you do and be in charge of these operations. You have to agree. It's different for those law enforcement agents that are there. They don't have a direct connection to this. You do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's even more uh, challenging. I would say when you ask them how they got into this and why they're there for two kids or whatever, because a lot of times they'll tell you, they'll lie about the severity of it. They're lie about, you know, why they came that day or whatever. But when I ask them about how they got into children, yeah, a lot of times they'll tell me. And I ask out of genuine sincerity. I'm like, I want to understand why this happens and how it happens. What got you started in this? And I listen to them 
when they explain it. You know, of course, we're capturing everything on audio and video, too, um, for other purposes, you know, for evidence and sometimes Absolutely. documentary footage. But I want to know, like, how did you become this sick predator who harms children for your own selfish lust? Do you not care about the children? And the, the obvious answer is no, they don't care about the children because they, they wouldn't do it if they did. You know, uh, they, they would leave the children alone if they cared. So that's very upsetting. Once I have a conversation like that with somebody and, they, and they're sociopathic, like the, uh, the 73-year-old uh, elite pedophile in Utah that came in a suit, um, he didn't care. He, didn't, he just didn't want to get caught. He did this all the time. He had a big family. We had multiple family members of his call us and, and write us and thank us for stopping him. Yeah, this is the guy that wears a suit and the little lapel pin and everything that was in there. Yeah. yeah. So if we can go more into it now, you, you state over and over in interviews, written and, and video and audio interviews that you don't think people think that this exists. But that's an interesting statement to me that, that you that's why you made the video or the, the documentary. That's why you do a lot of the stuff you do. But I guess I'm not understanding do you mean that people don't know the level that it's at? Or do you think that people don't understand that it actually happens? It's a, it's a dissonance. It's a, a cognitive refusal to accept a widespread evil. People don't want to believe it. Like if, God forbid, if I had cancer, if you were my doc, I would need for you to tell me. Uh, but if you did, I wouldn't want to believe it, you know, but if you're my doctor, I probably have to make, come to terms with it because you'd have a reason for telling me and you could probably demonstrate it, testing and so forth. Our populace don't want to acknowledge this because number one, it makes them feel bad and it makes them feel bad because harm is being done to the innocent and it makes them feel bad because they're not doing anything about it. Once somebody's made aware of a problem, they feel a sense of uh, responsibility to help do something about it. Since people are busy or they're scared or, or just not inclined, they don't want to help do anything about it, most of them. Some do, thank God, a lot of them are calling us and, and volunteering and helping and all kind of other things. But people don't want to know about it and they turn a blind eye. And coming from a covert background, counterterrorism, I mean, the intelligence community, I can tell you that the, the easiest thing for a covert operation is secrecy. Man, if, if, if nobody knows what you're doing, you can do whatever you want. And that's what child trafficking is in the United States. It's a domestic covert operation run on an industrial scale in the United States, selling children and taking them to predators that rape them. So we, we arrest the end user, we arrest the rapists who drive the demand for the traffickers. Traffickers, it's a it's a 38 to $50 billion a year criminal enterprise inside the United States, which means if it's closer to 50 than the 38, that means it's bigger than all pro sports combined for annual revenue. That's a lot of children whose lives are being destroyed to generate that level of, of financial income. and. I'm not okay with that. 
And so I'm one that, that's inclined to go after it and expose it. And I realized Alfred Kinsey back in the 40s and 50s was a science fraud. And he did a bunch of studies claiming that children are sexual from birth and that raping them is normal and good. And we have this radical section of our uh, society that wants to normalize child rape. And Kinsey was one of those. And he falsified his studies to make any sort of flinching, jerking, passing out, uh, screaming, um, you know, convulsions, all this as orgasm. He would mark it down as orgasm because that's what he wanted it to be. In his sick mind, he wanted to feel normal and good, as all perverts do, because they're humans, and they want other people to condone their behavior, no matter how harmful it is to the innocent children. So he went around, Kinsey did, to 50 states, all 50 states, politicking, poisoning our psychological healthcare system to, to the idea that child rape is somehow normal and good. Our legal system, our judicial system, and our educational system. So one guy accelerated this cultural normalization of child rape. And now, a couple generations later, we've got an epidemic, an absolute unthinkable, tragic epidemic of this. And I just realized that exposing it is job one. We can't fight a threat we don't, that we don't know. So every American needs to be aware of it. And, you know, I get frustrated uh, just because I run a small nonprofit org and we don't have, you know, we're not getting huge millions of dollars at a time. We don't have any, any kind of big budget yet. And we're, we're doing the great things with what we have, but I'm frustrated. I want to go so big because I know it's tangible to me how many children are suffering. I get it. It's, it haunts me. I feel like it's a, it's a burden that's been placed on me because maybe I'm the kind that'll do something about it. I feel like I'm supposed to do something about it. To the degree that I can, it's just a busted up father and veteran. So I'm, I'm trying to expose it. We're running the operations against it and, uh, and we're educating people against it. So we're fighting against it in every way that we can. But I think the exposure is, is has to come first, man. And uh, people don't all want to know because it's ugly topic and it's painful to learn so i have the uh the the burden of being the bearer of bad news but at the same time it's the bearer of good news because we can be heroes everybody wants to have a chance to be the hero sometime in their life i don't care what kind of life you've lived god's gracious and there's second and third and 50th chances and so everybody can contribute and do something to help save the little ones now and change this dynamic you got an industrial scale crime spree destroying children what's that about that's some pretty dark and creepy and ugly stuff that has no place in our culture here in the united states and we can all have the opportunity so now we get to be the people that shine the light and do something good for the little ones everybody from the smallest girl to the biggest man can do something and that's the good news the good news is you get to do something. You don't have to be, you don't have to be uh, law enforcement or military or anything. You just have to be someone who's willing to use your voice and hound your elected officials. Go to vetsforchildrescue.org and learn all the tools that are there and consume that and make sure your children know about the problem so they're they're not easy victims and train them. Watch Contraland. Share that with everybody that you know. All the biggest public officials and figures. 
share it with them, make sure they watch it and they understand and let's change our culture back to one that's protective of children. So now when I go to public speaking gigs or I go speak at churches or uh, law enforcement, it's, it's so encouraging, brother, when people say, hey, Craig, it's working. The mission's working. People are having a conversation now. They weren't talking this way two or three years ago. You know, nobody knew. It was still very, very quiet on the streets. The civilians didn't know. Now it's starting to come out. People are starting to have a conversation and go, whoa, 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 this is some creepy stuff. You know, with Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein and Hollywood and all these cases, you know, Barney Frank and all these slobs, these scumbags that rape children. It, it's it's useful that they get exposed so that the populace go, oh, wow, evil people do exist. These selfish, um, these selfish people who are so weak of character that they'll harm God's most precious and innocent little children and, uh, and do it again and again. The average number of children a child rapist ruins throughout their lifetime with their sexual assaults is 70. 70 children each. So everyone that we arrest and convict and put away in prison, that represents a list of an average of 70 children that will not be harmed by that predator. And that feels pretty good. So let's talk about two things uh, real quick. You talk about when no one knew about it about three to five years ago. Let's talk about top cover from the legal system and from the media and then brownstoning operations. Okay. From the legal system, we have to have judges and AGs and, and DAs. So district attorneys, attorney generals of states um, who will prosecute child sex crimes. Not all of them will. Um, our COO a couple months back did a, a deliberate study and she found, I forget how many the number was, but there were thousands several thousand judges and district attorneys whose careers, whose campaigns to get in office were funded by an international billionaire that's notorious, George Soros. George Soros does not fund the campaigns of honorable judges and district attorneys or attorney generals. Why would he? If you look at his life's history and what he funds, he funds the destruction of the culture of the United States. It's specifically the things that make our country strong. Our morality is, is at the, the epicenter of our culture. And he wants judges and DAs that will not prosecute child sex crimes. So we have to have those in who will. So we need to start looking at the, at the um, track records of these judges and district attorneys and if they're not prosecuting child sex crimes and child, child predators, something's very, very wrong. It's not that you don't have that crime in your area. It's that they're not getting convicted. And so your children are not getting safeguarded. Your community's not being safeguarded. You've got a problem. You've got a corruption problem. And it's, it's pretty prevalent. And all the major cities, a major, major problem. Smaller towns, a lot of them have a major problem. So we find locations where we got DAs that'll prosecute child sex criminals and, and we, we work and we do great stuff there. And, uh, you know, as we film more and more documentaries, we're going to start holding up as shining exemplars and heroes, the, the, the heroes of law enforcement who do prosecute the predators. 
and defend the children and serve and protect in good faith in their counties where other counties don't get that because they got a corrupt judge or, or DA. So that's what we can do, you know, on the positive front. And so we need more of that legislation. You know, obviously uh, we need to have stronger laws, stronger penalties against the predators, stronger protections for the children. We need to be teaching children how to avoid being victims of child predators instead of learning how to become a good little victim. Instead of learning how to put things in, in holes in your body that they don't belong and when you're five years old, instead of learning different acts of perversion in kindergarten, you should be teaching them about stranger danger and how it's not always a stranger people that try to molest children and how it's not okay. And not to let anybody threaten you or threaten mommy or daddy for you not to tell. And, uh, and teaching them about how apps on their smartphones can be used to surreptitiously get their facial recognition to geolocate them um, and send surreptitious video to other predators online and to be careful who, which apps they're using and, and who they're talking to online. We should be empowering the little ones, safeguarding them, not setting them up to be victims like, like, like it's happening now from a radical section of our, our culture. So hey, that, those are some things that, we're, that are needed, man. Stronger education, stronger legislation, cleaner judges, NDAs. Um, and we need to talk about it more. The, the parents need to talk with the kids, empower them, teach them about it, and, um, and have the discussion um, publicly. I think it's a tough discussion for a, a lot of families, uh, for a lot of people, um, and we, we need to break down those barriers. Uh, a way to do that is to go to your website. There's educational resources. There's there's uh, Internet things that they can learn about, red flag apps that they can learn about on there like you just talked about. They can learn where to volunteer. Um, do you want to talk about any of those before we get done here, about any of the stuff that's on the website? Yeah, I, I think, no, I just have them go to the website and they okay. can learn about all those tools and be empowered by it. It's very important to go there. We gave that up. We offer that up in good faith to the populace because we want you to have it. Knowledge is power, folks. And I love the American people. I love all people, really. Um, but I think uh, the populace deserves to know. The crooked politicians know. The criminals know about child trafficking and then it's a 38 to $50 billion a year criminal enterprise. A lot of them are in on it. The only people that don't know is the law-abiding American citizen. And so it's about time that the law-abiding citizens start learning about a lot of these secrets that only the elite and the corrupt know about. So it's time to start changing the dynamic of power. Knowledge is power. We're offering some to you on vetsforchildrescue.org. Go get you some. Craig, what's next for you, man? Brother, I wish I knew. No, <laughs> we uh, we got a series in the works. We've got we probably got ten episodes of footage of operational footage that we haven't even shown yet. That just needs to be edited. So that process is starting literally um, last week, and and uh, editing a lot of that stuff and uh, getting it up on whichever platform, and expanding our our educational programs. There's a lot of youth sports leagues and things that uh, the coaches deserve the training as do the, the young athletes. 
as do the parents. And so we can break a lot of this uh, secrets, break, break the, you know, rip the veil off of this in order to create a safer place for children. And that's exciting. And our, our investigations and operational program are expanding. I mean, we just recovered two um, um, children this, this past weekend. And it was uh, our, our lead investigator and our analyst helped some um, old contacts of mine back from my old Navy days back in, in Virginia. Um, ended up being a runaway case, but uh, through some of the software and investigation um, techniques was able to help uh, vector in the father and, and uh, ultimately recover the two youths. So that was that felt pretty good. So that kind of thing, we're able to just gain more and more technology and horsepower and capability and expand our team and just do more good, man. So our law enforcement allies are growing and just we're enjoying the process. Well, Craig, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. You've been out there uh, really batting away at it your your entire adult life, and I don't see you slowing down anytime soon. Guys, if you want to check some more out about this guy uh, and see some pictures of him when he was a little younger, uh, there's a little more color in the beard and the hair, you can go to tacticalinsider.com. It has his complete bio, training classes that he does. It talks about all kinds of different things. It has his gear on there. It talks about his appearances on TV. Now, if you want to help out the organization, that's vetsforchildrescue.org. Vetsforchildrescue.org. You want to go there. It's got all of your educational resources. It's got all of your talking points that you can not only have with your family, but your kids and to get that word out to everyone else. You've taken on a big task. You've done a lot of work, Craig, and we, we thank you so much for everything that you've done, everything that you've been through and everything that you'll still do. Guys, go check him out, tacticalinsider.com and vetsforchildrescue.org. If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Remember, the best stories are true. That's why you come here every week because we give them to you. That's going to be the show for tonight. Did you have something, Craig? One last thing. Folks, Go ahead. To anything else that you might want to do to help, please do pray. Uh, they didn't teach me about spiritual warfare and the SEAL teams, but I'm telling you, uh, the inclination for bad people to rape and torture children comes from a very dark and evil uh, energy. And there is such a thing as a, the clash between good and evil. And uh, praying is prayer is powerful and it does work. And uh, I ask you to add that to anything else that you do, because that's a major part of this equation. So. Thanks for thanks for that, guys. All right, Craig. On that note, that's going to be the show for tonight, guys. That's Craig. I'm DJ. This has been the show. Catch us on the next one. We'll see you later. Bye.